What I want to talk on tonight, this morning, is it arises out of, it's been on my mind a little bit anyways, um, and I've had five people the last two weeks ask me basically the same question, which is unusual, and sometimes I, I, I take notice of that, like, okay, maybe there's something I'm supposed to speak on, and, and it, it seems like a very simple question, but in fact, it's quite complex and, and uh, uh, I think profound. And the question is, why did Jesus, this is the title of the message this morning, why did Jesus have to become a human and die? And of course, we say, well, for our sins, yes, but uh, let's, 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 what does that mean? Why did Jesus have to become a human and die? And I'm going to tell you right now that this is going to be uh, one of the most theologically dense messages, not dense, I hope, in the sense of intellectually dull, but in the sense of being packed, because uh, there's just some profound, I think, beautiful uh, theological truth to explore here. Um, and so if you want to turn uh, in your Bibles, we encourage you now to bring your Bibles. And I'm, I am, we're thinking now, we're going to try to have a standardized version for everybody uh, as we go into, as we encourage people to bring their Bibles, and we'll be turning to our Bibles more and more. Well, it's John 1, uh, if you have your Bibles and want to turn there. Um, but uh, we're right now thinking that we're going to go with the, uh, today's New International Version. Uh, a lot of people have the NIV. This is close to it, but it's a little bit updated, and it uses uh, inclusive language where it's very clear in the original language that they meant both men and women, whereas the NIV always has man, and, and that is an important thing for me. Um, so uh, just have heads up on that. Let's pray before we get into the message. Uh, can I get some people around the auditorium to uh, sprinkle my message with prayer as they're listening? A couple more? Thank you. I appreciate it. Lord, we're going to here dive into one of the most beautiful, profound, and mysterious teachings in your word. And I pray, God, that you illuminate our minds. And God, for those who have, who have had misconceptions that have damaged, maybe without them knowing it, have damaged their relationship with you, I pray, God, this would be a time of clarification where they could see a little bit more clearly the beauty, your beauty, your grace, your truth and how it is and why it is that you came to set us free. Let this word have your authority, not my own, and let it further the work of the kingdom in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Now, before we turn to John 1, I want to set this thing up this way. This, is, uh, uh, this here is, is uh, Sinner Joe. Cameras, can you get a good look at Sinner Joe? Uh, this is Sinner Joe. This is you. This is me. And when we come to understanding why it is that Jesus had to die, here's sort of the standard model you get. And it's not altogether wrong, but I think there's something off with it. Uh, it, it really has its origin in the 11th century when they began to think about the work of the cross in strictly legal terms. And here's how it goes. Sinner Joe, you know, God created Sinner Joe to have a relationship, so he's supposed to be facing this way. I worship you. But instead, he turned his back on God. All right? This takes God off. God is, is very wrathful. He's an all-holy God. He can't relate to uh, sinner Joe in his sinfulness. And so he looks upon, as Jonathan Edwards says, looks upon sinner Joe as a loathsome spider dangling on a little thin thread just above the fire, and his wrath burns towards sinner Joe. And here's the hammer of his wrath. And, and, and God's justice against all sin and unrighteousness was ready to come down on sinner Joe. But just in the nick of time, oops, oops. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it again. 
Jesus comes in and protects sinner Joe from the wrath of God. Jesus says, no, Dad, don't do it, steps in and takes the blow that we deserve. Now, God uh, is okay with that because at least he, got, he vented his wrath. He was, as the tradition says, satisfied. Oh, okay, I vented my anger on that one. And as long as somebody took the beating, sinner Joe's okay and God's okay with sinner Joe. Uh, it, it's sort of a, a standard way of, of thinking about the cross. Now, now here's, here, here's some consequences of this. And you see this throughout church history starting in the 11th century. For one thing, sinner Joe is no doubt going to be thankful for Jesus. I, I love Jesus. But sinner Joe isn't going to be quite so hot about the Father. What's with God the Father? I mean, he would just assume, it seems, have sent me to hell. He's got this, uh, this rage, and as long as somebody takes a beating, he's okay with it. And I'm just glad it's not me, but I'm not so sure I want to get too close to him. And so you have this sort of schizophrenia in God in the minds of a lot of people. And I bet some people here in this auditorium have had this at times, where uh, you love Jesus, but the Father, you know, there's, there's this, he's sort of the, the rageful side of God, this this sinister side of God. And, and now Jesus becomes the buffer between us and God. No, Dad, don't do it. So we like our defense attorney, but we're not so sure of the father who seems to be more of the, the prosecutor. Here's another consequence that we find, and this is epidemic in America. Sinner Joe here is going to be thankful that, that uh, Jesus took the beating for him. But now he's thinking, hey, great, I, there's this legal loophole uh, Jesus took the punishment for my crime. Uh, cool. That means that uh, then I can't be punished for anything that I do. So little sinner Joe goes out and sends his little happy brain off. All the while, banking on this legal loophole fire insurance protection from the father that he just got from Jesus. And so you have a lot of people who, who treat Christianity like magic. The magic is that somehow, if, as long as I say this formula, Jesus is Lord or Jesus is Savior, boom, he takes the blow from me, and now I can go along, and I don't uh, have... There's no transformation. There's no reality there. There's no life there, but he's got his fire insurance. It's epidemic in, in Christianity. Here's, here's some other questions, and these were the kind of questions that people have asked me the last couple weeks. How, how is it that... Jesus can take the punishment for what I do. How is he guilty for what I do? Guilt isn't the kind of thing that's transferable. And if he can't be guilty for what I do, how is it just that the Father punishes him for what I do? Here's another question. Does God really forgive anybody? Forgiveness is a matter of releasing a debt. But here, uh, no, the, the, the Father didn't release any debt. He just transferred it. He still vented his wrath and anger and vengeance, just not on us. Is that really forgiveness? If someone does me a wrong and I'm all full of anger, but I, I don't take it out on them, but I, I, I get even with somebody else, have I really forgiven them? I, they got off the hook, but I haven't, it seems, really forgiven them. One of the biggest problems, however, is this. The Bible says that, that God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8. He demonstrates his love for us. Jesus comes to reveal the love of the Father, not conceal the wrath of the Father. Jesus says, if you see me, you see the Father. There doesn't, there's not any hint of duplicity in God when Jesus comes to earth. He, he reveals who God is. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. It wasn't that God was so ticked off at the world, he, he took it out on his only begotten son. 
So while there is some truth in this analogy, I think there's also something amiss, and I want to dive into it very deeply to really understand why Jesus had to become a human and die on the cross. And what happened on the cross, we've got to go back to the very beginning. In fact, we've got to go back before the beginning. We've got to delve into the, the, the innermost recesses of the heart and counsel of God. And that brings us to John chapter 1. Uh, verse 1 says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Don't let any Jehovah's Witness try to tell you that that should be translated a God. Uh, they make a big deal over the fact that there's no definite article before God in the second instance, but over half the time in the New Testament, there is no definite article before God, and this is the only time where they translate that as a God. So don't even go there. And you could talk about Cowell's uh, rule in Greek, but, but let's move on. Um, the question I want us to ask is this. Why, does it say, why is Jesus called the Word here and, and not the Son? The, the, in the beginning was the word. That's, that's a little odd, isn't it? Now, the uh, Greek concept of logos, which is uh, the original here, the word means something like, it can mean literally a word or it can mean a thought. It's an expression or a purpose. A word, thought, expression, or purpose. In the beginning was the word, the thought, the, the purpose, the expression of God. And that, that purpose and, and expression uh, and plan was with God, and that purpose and expression and plan was God in the beginning. And then in verse 14, look at your Bibles. It says this, The Word, the plan, the expression, the purpose, became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen the glory, the glory of the one and only. Word, thought, expression, plan, purpose. And uh, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. What John is saying here is that Jesus is the whole purpose of God, the plan of God, the expression of God, and he is himself God. And what it tells me, as a number of theologians throughout church history have seen, is that the word didn't change. The same word that was in the beginning is the one who was embodied, became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Which tells us that the word, that expression, that plan, and that purpose always intended to become a human being. Jesus wasn't an afterthought on the part of God. He wasn't a sort of plan B. Now, the rescue mission he involved in, that came after. But, but from all eternity, God had planned on becoming one with us. It wasn't that human beings screwed up and then Jesus said, Oh, shucks, now i got to go rescue them from this mess that they made. Uh, no, from the very beginning, God had one, he created human beings to invite them in on his triune fellowship, that fellowship of perfect intimacy, uh, unsurpassable love, perfect joy, uh, the, the freedom and the playfulness of the triune God throughout all eternity. God created us in order to invite us in and participate in that. And part of that eternal plan, expression, and purpose that is God himself uh, involved becoming one of us to immerse himself in humanity in order to invite us in on his triune fellowship. God wants, a number of months ago we talked about the perichoresis of the three persons. They indwell in one another. And God's goal from the very beginning was to indwell in us. I in them and they in me, as Jesus says in John 17. That was the plan from the very beginning. Now if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Ephesians. It's uh, halfway through the New Testament, right after Galatians, just before Philippians. The book of Ephesians. And the word was God. 
See, who God is, God, in his, in, his identity has always been toward us. His heart has always been towards us. He always wanted to immerse himself with us and have us participate and dance in the triune fellowship. It's a glorious plan. Here's what it says in Ephesians. Now, uh, here you put on your thinking caps. Uh, it, it, it gets good. Uh, starting in verse 4. It says, For he chose us, God chose us in him, in Christ, before the creation of the world. Look at that. Before the fall, before anything, God had already chosen us in Christ. For what? To be holy and blameless in his sight. That was the plan from the very beginning. In love, God predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. In accordance with his pleasure and will. That eternal will, expression, thought, and purpose. That is the word that was in the beginning. To the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Okay, let's break this down. First of all, as I mentioned last week, when Paul says that he chose us in Christ from the foundation of the world, before the creation of the world, no Jew in the first century would mean that, would take that to mean he chose us, but not them. What God chose is that whoever is in Christ will be holy and blameless before him in love. But he didn't choose that you, as opposed to somebody else, would be in Christ. God's not willing that any should perish. Jesus died for, for not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. God's heart is universal. He doesn't any, 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 How's that complicated, educated phrase go? He doesn't like, you know, just before the creation of the world. No, what he chooses is that he wants all of humanity to be in Christ. And what he predestines that is that whoever's in Christ will be holy and blameless and adopted as children to the praise of his glorious grace. They will fulfill the eternal plan that he's always had. Predestination is like stepping into a river. Uh, you know, you, you, if you step into a river, it's going to carry you in a certain direction. It will carry you to the glory of the ocean. Uh, once you're in the river, it's predestined that you'll go to the ocean, providing you stay in that river. But it's not predestined that you step in the river or not. Whether you're in Christ or not, that's up to you. God's always pulling us to be in Christ, but we have the power to resist it. Once we're in Christ, we can say, here's what was chosen for us. We were chosen to be holy and blameless and spotless before him in love. So from the very beginning, God chose to have humanity in Christ. And Paul's thinking of the incarnate Christ here. Somehow, by becoming a man, God was going to incorporate all of humanity in Christ, and therefore, humanity would participate in the triune dance as Christ participates in this triune dance. But the second thing I want us to note here is this. All of this was decided before the creation of the world. It was God's eternal plan and eternal purpose. In fact, the Word was God. This is His heart. This is, the Father's heart towards us isn't a reluctant heart that now that we screwed up, now he has to do this radical thing of becoming a human. Rather, his heart was always to, to find that lost sheep, to, to, to win us over to become one of us. Look down at verse 9 in the book of Ephesians. Chapter 1, it says, And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, the mystery of that eternal will, that thought, that purpose, that expression that was with God and was God. He made known to us the mystery of that, which he purposed in Christ. That's why Christ, the incarnate Christ was always the center of God's eternal purpose and will. To bring all things, oh, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment. We won't see this whole plan played out until uh, the, God's plan is fulfilled. 
but we know the mystery of it right now. To bring, as we saw last week, all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him, Paul says again, we were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him, who works out everything in conformity to the purpose of his will. Here what we find is that God's eternal purpose, plan, expression, will, which is God himself, was to create a world and to gather the whole world together in Jesus Christ. And the role that humanity is to play is to be in Christ and to, and to be adopted as, a bri- as children and, and to be a bride, as it says in, in Revelations 21 and Ephesians 5. The scenario that I get as I read this is that the, the Adam and Eve scenario in, in, the, in, in Genesis 3 was a sort of courtship period. And now the whole of world history is a courtship period where God is wooing us. But the goal is to be married. And that's why Paul likens our relationship to Christ in Ephesians 5, verse 30. You don't have time to turn there. But he likens it to a marriage union, uh, a, a relationship of absolute intimacy where nothing is hidden, where nothing is concealed, where everything is open, where there is no shame. And that's why for Paul, the the, uh, sexual intimacy is a metaphor of God's relationship with us. And that was the goal. And Christ becoming incarnate is sort of the consummation of that. He enters into us and invites us into the, the triune God. And the goal has always been what we find in Revelation 21, where it talks about the bride coming down and being adorned. And now God is with the bride and the bride is with God. That was always his plan. What was not part of his original plan was that we'd say no to the courtship. But that's exactly what we did in the beginning and that's exactly what we do today. This is what's called in traditional language the fall, the fall of humanity. I rather like the term rebellion. Falling is what you do by accident. Uh, rebellion is what you do on purpose, and we rebelled. Uh, the story is found in Genesis 3 where we uh, turned on God and turned our backs on God, came under bondage to the devil, entered into rebellion. Now, th- that didn't catch God off guard. God's never caught off guard. God's infinitely intelligent, but that is, was not part of his eternal plan and purpose. But now that it's here, he's got to deal with it. The fall causes three problems. And to understand why Jesus had to die, as well as become incarnate, we need to understand these three problems. Actually, there's, there's, there's about 100 problems that he solves with the incarnation, but these are the three major ones. Number one, the problem is that we're separated from God now. Uh, you read in Genesis 3 that the enemy told us a lie, uh, gave us a deceptive picture of God, and we believed it, which caused us to mistrust God. Mistrust is the opposite of faith. Uh, uh, All relationships are based on trust or based on faith. That's why the Bible makes such a big deal out of faith. Faith is not an intellectual belief. Faith is a trusting of the heart. And where there is no trust of the heart, there is no relationship. Because we believed a lie, we stopped trusting God. We stopped going to God for our only source of life. We developed a vacuum in our heart because we're made for that life. So we start getting, trying to get life from the things in this world. And that is the situation of the fall. So the first thing that God's got to solve is he's got he's to abolish the lie and restore a trusting faith relationship with him. Second thing is that we have been diseased. We've contracted a fatal disease. Sin is not first and foremost about the particular bad things we do. State is a condition that we are in. It is a disease. So what God now has to do if he's going to carry out his eternal plan, purpose, expression, and will is he's got to heal us. He has to find a way to bring about healing in, in humanity. And the third thing we read about in Genesis 3 is that we have fallen under bondage to the devil. 
We surrendered our authority on the earth over to him, and now we are slaves to God's cosmic arch enemy. So what God has to do in becoming a man now is, is he has to set us free. I want us to note here that the problem, the problem that God fa faces is not a question of who am I going to punish for making this mess? His question is not how can I vent my righteous anger without eternally damning them? God's, God's problem is not a legal problem. God's problem is a reality problem. Now here's the difference. Listen, listen up on this. A criminal who's in prison, who's got a criminal mind and a criminal heart. To that criminal, the problem is a legal problem. The only problem he thinks about is, how can I, how can I get off the hook for the crime that I did, and how can I get out of prison? That's a legal problem. But if he's got a healthy mother who loves him, she's got a reality problem. Her issue isn't the legal one, how can I get my son off the hook and get him out of prison, because for, you know, I, as long as he stays the way he is, she probably believes he should stay in prison and shouldn't get off the hook. Her issue is rather this. I love my son, and he's a criminal. How can I enter into his life to transform him? How, how can I get him out from under the bondage of this criminal mind and criminal heart that he's got? How can I change the reality that he is? How can I free him from himself? That's a reality issue. Now, if you take care of the reality issue, you take care of the legal issue. But if you take care of the legal issue... You don't even address the reality issue. God's issue isn't a legal problem. It's a reality problem. He's not looking to get us off the hook. He wants to change the reality of our situation. His question is, how do I, how do I restore a real relationship with these people who have really separated from me? How do I bring about real healing for these people who are really diseased? How do I free, bring about real freedom for them when they're under the real oppression of the, the devil? It's so important that we make that distinction between legality and reality because a whole lot of thinking today about God is in legal terms. And it, 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 it creates some of the most monstrous pictures of God. Some people see God as this up, uptight cosmic accountant who's rageful about all the particular rules we, we're broken. Every time we break a rule, he's just like, oh, he gets, where's that hammer of mine? And fortunately, Jesus is always there saying, no, Dad! And so he's this rageful accountant over all the particular things, and he won't forgive any of us until somebody takes the blow because he's just so ticked off. And it's really hard to be passionately in love if, if with God if that's your picture of God. But you see, sin is not first and foremost a legal matter of breaking particular rules. Sin is a disease. It's a reality problem. We're separated from God. We're diseased. We're in bondage. Sin is not so much a matter of what we do. That just expresses who we are, and that's the reality problem. It's what we are. Now, God's answer to this is the incarnation, which was his plan from the beginning of the world, but now it will also involve the crucifixion. The incarnation and crucifixion. This is God's answer to the dilemma that, that human beings are in. Let's flesh out the three problems. First of all, the incarnation and crucifixion. It reveals the true God and restores faith. It restores trust. You see, the whole problem that we're in is based on a lie. We believe lies about God. We did in the beginning and we do now. In fact, I, I, I don't for a moment think that any of us here in this auditorium have a truly accurate picture of God. To some degree, our picture of God is polluted. It's to some degree diseased. None of us see God as beautiful as he actually is. But with the fall, you see, we, 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 we adopted a monstrous picture of God. 
You read about it in Genesis 3. And as a result of that, we don't trust God. We, we don't see God clearly. We, we don't go to him for our source of life, and therefore we live in idolatry. What Jesus does in becoming a human being and dying on the cross is he reveals to us what God is like. Why? Because he's the word of God. He, he has been there from the beginning. This is the eternal heart of God. God's heart is always a Calvary heart. And so against all the lies about God, all the deceptions about God, all the pollution uh, in our pictures of God that we might have, Jesus Christ comes to reveal unequivocally, absolutely, unabashedly the heart of God. This is what God is really like. And that's why, as we saw a little earlier, Paul says in, in Romans 5, that God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. On Calvary and really throughout the whole ministry of Jesus, we see the pure, undiluted heart of God. This isn't a reluctant rescue mission that Jesus is on. This has always been the heart of God. It's, it's the heart of the Father. Abolish once and for all in your mind any sort of tension between the Father and the Son. God is one, echad. It means integrated unity. There is no, du no duplicity in God. That's why Jesus is called the word of God, the image of God, the form of God, the perfect expression of God. That's why he says, if you see me, you see the Father. Uh, all you need to know and, uh, to, to enter into a trustful relationship with God is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And you see, as we see the heart of God and trust that that is the heart of God, as we shut out every other, every other influence uh, in our theology that might jade our pictures of God, as we look on the beauty of the cross, our hearts are won over. And we fall in love with God, and now we begin to trust him once again. This is a God who you can trust to be on your side, to be for you. He's not against you. He wants to give you life. His intentions for you are altogether good. His intentions are altogether lovely. He wants an eternal relationship with you. He was willing to do anything he had to do to be in an eternal relationship with you. For the joy that was set before him, Christ went to the cross. He wants to reveal in a perfect way who God is what God has been like for all, all, all eternity. And when we see that, our hearts can be won over. We can begin to enter into a new covenantal trust with God. And now we have faith, and we trust God, and now the relationship between us and, and God begins to be restored. Secondly, the incarnation and crucifixion heals our sin disease. Sin, as I said before, is a disease it's not about forgiving particular sins as much as it is curing the disease that leads to all particular sins. And the way that I, that will never understand this side of eternity, I, I don't have the metaphysics of this worked out just yet, but Christ solves this problem by dying for us on the cross. He, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that God made him to be sin who had no sin. Jesus had no sin, but God made him to be sin. In Isaiah 53, it says, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. In some way, Christ functions as sort of a medicinal sponge, if you will, to absorb the disease of humanity to heal us from this disease. Here's sort of a, an, an analogy I get. If, I, if any of my kids, my son or my, my two daughters, if they had cancer, and if I could somehow lay hands on them and absorb the cancer into myself, I'd do it in a heartbeat. I, 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 I love them. I, I'd give my life for them. If all three of them had it at the same time and I could lay hands on all three of them and absorb that disease, I'd have triple cancer. It'd be excruciating, but I'd do it in a heartbeat. 
And if I was a perfectly loving person, I, I'd be willing to do that for every person on the planet and for, for all people at the same time, uh, absorbing six, million, uh, six billion diseases uh, if it was necessary. Well, see, this is exactly what Jesus did for us on the cross. God laid on him the iniquity of us all. Uh, it, it, don't think of it in legal terms of transferring a guilt. Think of it as God taking upon himself the cancer of the world. This is the real horror of the cross. The real horror is not the physical pain that Jesus uh, experienced. That's not why he was sweating drops of blood in the garden. The real horror for the all-holy Son of God is that he's now going to experience sin from the inside. And the sin, the cancer of the entire world, the, the cancer of Greg Boyd, that can't be easy for the Son of God. Combine that with the cancer of Adolf Hitler and the cancer of Joseph Stalin, the cancer of Eddie Dahmer, and the cancer of every human being that has ever existed, and the cancer of every human being that shall ever exist. And on the cross, he absorbs it all. God made him to be our sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He takes upon himself the, 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 the whole of that. And sin is antithetical to his nature. We can't begin to imagine how horrifying that was, but it even gets worse, but it also gets better. Because in absorbing the disease, he absorbed God's stance towards the disease. Don't think this in legal terms is God trying to get even with us by punishing him. But rather it's like this. Think of it not in legal terms, think of it in real terms. God hates disease, our spiritual disease, because it destroys us and God loves us. His hatred for the disease is simply the flip side of his love for us. Sin kills us. God hates the disease, and yet in the person of Jesus Christ, God himself, not an innocent third party, God himself takes upon the disease and then takes upon himself his own righteous stance against that disease. He doesn't hate Jesus. He hates the disease that Jesus has now absorbed and expresses his wrath towards that, which is why the cross shows us not only God's love. Listen to this now. It shows us God's love, but at the same time, and for the same reason, it shows us God's hatred towards sin. It shows us his hatred towards the disease. That's, and that's part of how he shows us his love for us, because the disease kills us. And in doing all of this, God is such a genius. He is putting on display his eternal heart. This is what I'm like. This is what I'm like. If you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 3. Turn there very quickly, because I'm going to run out of time here. Uh, and i got a whole lot I want to say to you. <laughs> Uh, this, it, it just gets, it gets thicker and thicker, but more and more beautiful. Romans chapter 3, it's right after the book of Acts, fifth book in the New Testament. Is that right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, yeah. I never went to Awana, so I, I still got to. Okay, here's what Paul says. No, no, listen to this. this. This is teaching stuff here, you guys. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did, he did this to demonstrate, and when you hear faith, you gotta hear the word trust. Don't hear intellectual belief, that's magic. Hear trust. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did, it, he did this in Christ to demonstrate his justice, his stance towards the disease at the present time so as to be just, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Whole lot of stuff in this one. Let's just say a couple of things. One, the sacrifice of atonement, this is so important because without this background information, you can get all screwed up on this. 
Paul is thinking here of, that, uh, of the, the atonement seat in the Old Testament where they'd come before God when sins were committed and they'd twist off a bird's head and sprinkle the blood and, and, and that made atonement for the sin. And Jesus is like that. Now it's so important that we understand this not in legal terms, but in real terms. Follow this. If you're thinking in legal terms, you think that, uh, that God's up there and every time a, there's a particular sin, God just gets his hammer out and says, okay, okay. And so they're saying, quick, grab a pigeon. And, and you rip off the pigeon's head and then God, okay, as long as someone died, I don't care if it's a pigeon or a goat, you know, uh, but I, I at least could vent my wrath. Take it off on the pigeons. And you see how dysfunctional that can get? Like we're appeasing God's wrath by killing an animal. And then, then appeasing God's wrath by killing Jesus. But see, think of it in real terms. Here's the thing. All of the blood language in the Bible is for this purpose. Life is about having a relationship with God and a relationship with each other that reflects our relationship with God. The biblical terms are covenant. To be in a committed, faithful relationship, trust and trustworthy relationship with God and with one another. So God wants to hammer home that this is life. To do that, he constantly models death. To, to not, this is why in all the covenants, they would enter into it by sacrificing these animals. And they're saying, if I break covenant, let it be to me as it is with this animal. And God's teaching them that to not be in covenant relationship is death. And you need constant reminders about this. Life is found in relationship. The kingdom of God is about relationship. So what God is doing here is this. On the cross, he shows, at the same time he shows unequivocally who he is, what his heart is, what his love is, he shows unequivocally his stance against covenant breaking, his stance against the disease that leads to covenant breaking. God, out of his love, experiences the consequence of broken covenant. I can put it like this. God, uh, to not be in relationship with God is, is ultimately hell. So God shows his love for us and his stance against sin by experiencing hell himself. His own stance against disease. He shows, he shows that he himself is willing to experience hell for covenant breakers. He justly condemns the covenant breaking, but he does it in himself in order that he might justify the covenant breakers. He, it, it's genius, and it also costs him everything. He is both just and the justifier of the ungodly. Don't think in legal terms. Think in real terms. To break God, break covenant with God is to experience hell, and God experiences this for himself. And in all of this, he's sucking out the cancer. He's sucking out the cancer of humanity. He's experiencing it for himself. And now anyone who, who enters into this trust, trusting and trustworthy relationship with God has that relationship with God restored, and now the healing power of the cross flows on us. That's why the Bible says, it's one of the reasons why the Bible says that when you put your trust in Christ, you have a new nature. You're a new being. You're altogether new. Old things have passed away. That's why it says that God made him to be sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God. We're healed from the sin disease. That's why it says that we're kingdom people, that we're redeemed, that we're predestined to be holy and spotless, predestined to look like Jesus Christ. And the whole goal of life, from a Christian perspective, is to learn how to walk cancer-free, if you will. Learn how to walk free from that disease, which is to say, learn how to walk in a covenant relationship with God, which is to say, learn how to walk as you really are, because this is who you are in Christ. Stop thinking like a criminal, worrying about how you're going to get off the hook. Rather, start living free from your old criminal nature. Let the healing power of the cross flow into you.
<sighs> okay. Right, this is last thing that, that, that happens here, and I got to do this in five minutes, is that the incarnation and crucifixion frees us from the devil. The, the scariest thing for me is that if you're going with this analogy here, then, then you have the person, the person stays a criminal, and they think that that's okay. And God loves you too much for that. He, he, he's like, I, no, 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 no. He, he's more like the parent who just wants to transform you from the inside. Okay. But see, if you, go the, if you think in legal categories, you're thinking of something abstracted from the person. If you think in real categories, you're thinking of the reality of this person and the reality of God and the reality of the relationship between them. Third thing, the incarnation and crucifixion frees us from the devil. Uh, we, we don't have time to turn there, so I'll just read them. First John chapter 3 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Okay, that's one of the reasons why he, 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 he put an end to this cosmic war that he had been involved in, in principle. Now we're in this in-between stage where we're waiting for the full manifestation of it, but in principle he's been defeated. Hebrews chapter 2, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. When Jesus died on the cross, something about, it, it was the ultimate act of good overcoming evil, of love overcoming hatred. Uh, it, was, it was the cosmic illustration of all the things that Jesus uh, taught us. This act of love destroyed, precisely because it was an act of unsurpassable love, destroyed the power of the devil, dealt a death blow to the devil. Now, we're not told all the metaphysics and details of it, but we know that that happened. Uh, one way to think about it is this. The only power, and get this now, the only power the devil has ever had on you individually or on humanity collectively is the power of a lie. He's such a loser. He, has to, he can't operate in reality. He has to operate in unreality. So whenever God brings reality, it destroys the unreality. He, the, the devil just operates by a lie. He lies about God and therefore lies about us and lies about uh, where the right source of life is, which is why you have people living their entire lives pathetically chasing a little bit of worth and a little bit of value and a little bit of security and a little bit of significance by how they look and, and, and what they drive and what they wear and, and, and things of that sort. It's, it's pathetic when you consider what God has in store for us. But that's the, the power of the lie. When Jesus comes and reveals the truth, the lie, if we will simply have faith and trust it, the lie is exposed as a lie. Uh, the truth of who God is is revealed in Christ, and the truth of who we are is revealed in Christ. We know the, that God is for us and not against us, and we know that we are children of God and that, that we are loved, and we know that there is no duplicity in God, and, and, and we know where the right source of life is. We go to Christ to get our whole worth and our whole significance, which frees us from, from pursuing the silly, silly idols. And the Bible says in Colossians chapter 2, that when Christ died on the cross, we know that, that now there's no more condemnation in Christ. And so all the lies have been exposed, and the only thing the devil ever had on us was a lie. He accuses us. He brings up past stuff. He, he's always working behind the scenes to tell us that we're not who God says we are. But when we keep our eyes fixed on Calvary, fixed on Jesus Christ, now we can live free from the enemy. The Bible says in Colossians 2 that he's been disarmed. His weapons have been taken away. Why? Because his weapons were all about lies. So if you're in Christ, 
I'm feeling this here, okay? I'm feeling this. If you're in Christ, you can live free from the devil. You're out from under that bondage. Christ has set you free. And to live free from the devil means you live free from the, from the disease. You live free from the criminal mindset. You live free from the criminal character. You're, you're empowered to live free from fear and free from condemnation, free from accusation, free from idolatry, free from all the things that bind people. You're free now. You're free you're free to dance with the triune God. And that's what the plan's been all along. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word it was God. And we as the first fruits of the coming creation are to dance now, to start being now what God always wanted human beings to be. That is the dome in which God is king. That's the kingdom of God. I've got two minutes left, and I'm going to say two more words. Word number one, just to summarize all this, I, just, I want you to leave with this. Number one, know that God is not partly like Jesus. God is completely like Jesus. If you see me, you see the Father. Abolish every thought of duplicity, a sinister streak in God. Sometimes we, we have trouble making sense out of, uh, out of some things, but, but, but keep your eyes fixed on Calvary. This is the definitive revelation of God. God isn't partly like Jesus. The fullness of the Godhead dwelt in him bodily. Colossians 1.19, Colossians 2.9. Abolish all thoughts of that, any duplicity. The f Jesus reveals, not conceals, the Father's heart towards you. Secondly, salvation is about reality, not legality. So much theology has gone bad because we thought about God with a criminal mindset. And, and we're down here thinking, how can I get off the hook? Oh, good, Jesus is my, my, uh, my, the, the way to get off the hook. And we end up with bizarre pictures of God because of that. Salvation is about reality, not legality. And I want to end with this question. It's a challenge, and I want you to take it very seriously. In America, we have uh, thought about God almost exclusively in legal terms, at least in some circles. And there may be people here this, mor this morning who your whole relationship with God is simply having an intellectual belief that Jesus was your, your frying pan. And so you've had a magical kind of Christianity and, and uh, you just go along and, and, and that's sort of your ticket, your fire insurance. And I want you to know that, that uh, God, that's, not, that, that's not God's heart for you. Uh, God doesn't want to be, Jesus doesn't want to be a buffer between you and the Father. No, the Father wants to embrace you through the person of Jesus Christ. And what that means is, you know, is to have faith, which is about trust. Will you put all your trust in the person of Jesus Christ to the point where you trust him this much that your entire life will be lived for him from this moment on. That's what salvation is all about. Salvation in the Bible is not primarily uh, what's going to happen to you when you die thing. It's about a wholeness of life thing. The concept is wholeness. If you want wholeness now and forever, enter into a real relationship with him. Close your eyes for a moment here. Um, and with the prayer team come forward, and I'm just going to close with a, with a word of prayer. If you are here and you want prayer for any reason, I encourage you to come forward. If you're here and you maybe have had that legal relationship with God and it's not a, uh, it's not a real one, would you just raise your hand right where you are? Holy Spirit be moving. And I, I just want to pray for you right now. This is a very important thing. Just raise your hand. You want the real thing, not just the legal thing. Amen. Anybody else? Praise God. Okay, I got see that. All right, good. 
I'm going to pray for you, and I want to encourage you. I see that hand, and so does God. The main thing is God sees it. I, I want to encourage you after the service to, to come up and to, uh, up at the front of the auditorium. There'll be a person who would like to just talk with you about making it real, about making it real. So, Father, I pray for these who have raised their hands here this morning and for others maybe who didn't. Uh, God, that the relationship with you wouldn't, wouldn't just be a, a legal thing. They've meant well. That's maybe all they knew. But, Lord, you want, you want, you want to really have their hearts. You want a real covenantal, transforming, saving relationship. I pray, Lord God, that you'd re- show that to them, pull them in, help them to see that you're altogether lovely. For those here, Lord, who, who have maybe had suspicions and worries and fears about you as they project onto the Father, images they've heard about in songs or images they've, they've gotten from sermons or images from their parents or whatever, Lord. In Jesus' name, I come against it because that is of the devil. And I pray, Lord God, that our, our picture of you would be altogether like Jesus Christ and that our hearts would be all for you and that we trust you enough to base our life on you, to live for you every day of our life. Thank you, God, for all that you've done, for bringing us into a new reality. Help us to live it out every moment of our life. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. The front of the auditorium is open. God bless you guys.